Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. A lot of stuff that I'm going to get into today. Hope everyone enjoyed the SAG Awards recap that I did with my really good friend Jason yesterday. We got into our what our predictions were. We got into the results of the wins from Sunday night and the implications that they have during the awards season as we lead up to the Oscars in just a few weeks. So if you want to check that episode out, we filmed it yesterday and it's up right now. And of course, you can check this one out as well. And there's a lot of stuff that I want to talk about that I wasn't able to get to yesterday because usually when Jason and I go, we go for about like an hour or so. So I didn't want to make this a two hour plus podcast. So I wanted to break it up. So a lot of the news stories that I I wanted to bring up yesterday, I'm going to talk about today and a few other things that came out earlier in the morning on this Tuesday as well. So I'm going to be getting into the box office, the major news that came out for Godzilla versus Kong this weekend. Also, some of these supposed numbers that came in also with its HBO Max streaming service numbers as well. I'm also going to be getting into a bunch of trending trailers that came out over the weekend as well and a whole lot more. But the first thing that I do want to start out with talking about is, of course, what I do every single week at the top of the week is recapping the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and doing a full-on spoiler review for everything that went on during the episode. So again, this is going to be a spoiler review, and if you have not watched it yet, as I've done throughout the last few episodes of Falcon and Winter Soldier, as I did through with WandaVision, I will put down in the comment section, the descriptor below of the runtime that I am talking about the spoiler of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So if you have not seen it yet and you don't want anything spoiled, you can watch the episode and then come back to this podcast, look at the runtime, and then join in on the conversation of what you thought about the episode. So we're going to get right into it now. Spoilers for episode three of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier start right now. And this episode is titled The Power Broker. And personally, like I said in my non-spoiler review on Friday, is that I thought this was my favorite episode to date so far. And again, we still have three episodes to go. And I did the same thing with WandaVision, same thing with Mandalorian, in that usually I'll really have to see the end of the season to really gauge what my true favorite episode was. But as far as we've gotten in this small sample size with these three episodes, I really, really did enjoy this episode as I thought it really furthered the plot, it further evolved the characters, and we also were reintroduced to two big prominent characters from the Captain America films, which were Zemo, played by Daniel Bruhl, and Sharon Carter in this episode, who was played by Emily Van Camp. So we really got to really kind of see the evolution of these characters since, in terms of the MCU timeline, it's been about seven years since we were acquainted with them in Captain America Civil War, where Zemo was captured after the role he played in, in dividing the Avengers, and then Sharon, it seems like, was on the run in in helping Steve and Sam get their armor back in order to save the world and fight the the super soldiers that they were after in Civil War. And so we really get to kind of catch up with each of these characters in this episode. And I want to start out with Zemo. And again, what makes these shows, I think, so great in WandaVision and what we've gotten so far in Falcon and Winter Soldier is continuing to layer these characters and showcase more of the world that we might not have gotten in the films themselves. And it starts out that way with 
with Zemo, where we get to kind of learn more about his ideology in which in Civil War, it was the fact that because of the Avengers part in the Battle of Sokovia, that he held them responsible for the death of his family and really the death of his land in which we find out that he was basically the, the richest guy in Sokovia. He was the guy around town. He has his own private plane, his own butler. So we get to learn that Zemo is more of a very wealthy kind of person, has all these different connections, which I think can also help to explain how he was able to really kind of get around in Civil War and finding all these secrets within Hydra and getting to where he was able to get to and, and hiring all these people in executing his plot in that film. And again, he also continues to have the same ideology of that he did in Civil War, which he thinks that these superheroes that get turned into icons are, are farces. They're false. They're not who they say they are. And he thinks about that because of what happened in Avengers Age of Ultron. And there's this great sequence after he breaks out of, uh, out of prison with Bucky where we get to really kind of see him talk about those philosophies with Sam, talking about how Steve was somebody who even though he had all these powers, they're not really being utilized to the best of their abilities. And that when we put these heroes on these pedestals, that it creates more problems than it really does solutions. And again, I think you can kind of, even though you see Zemo as more of a villain, it continues kind of that 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 gray area that we experience in Civil War, and I think we're experiencing in Falcon and Winter Soldier as well, where there's no really black and white. Everyone, even someone like Sam and Bucky, they're in very gray areas in the decisions that they've made throughout this show. And for Zemo, even though we see him, again, more as a villain and we don't agree with his ideals, he is in that gray area where, as himself, Himself, he thinks what he's doing is the right thing where he doesn't want any heroes he doesn't want any super soldiers any mystical magical beings he thinks that they're all forces and don't deserve to be in this world and even Bucky says when Sam and him are arguing about breaking out Zemo that Zemo still goes by a code in which he doesn't want to see any super soldiers so he's able to be more of an ally to them in this episode than he would be in Captain America Civil War and and we also learn about the connections that he has to Madripoor, which we'll get into in a little bit. And he kind of becomes this this ally to them where he's basically kind of leading them throughout this this landscape of Madripoor. And he's somebody that we slowly, again, start to gain a little bit more trust to. But by the end of the episode, I think we're kind of still at arm's length of whether we should trust Zemo or not. And that goes this, the same way to Sharon Carter as well. And again, we get to learn more about Sharon and, and we kind of re- they the writers reinvented Sharon a little bit where it's not the same woman that we got to know in the Winter Soldier and the Civil War, where she was more of somebody that was a true believer in Captain America and was by his side and believed the causes that he fought for. And then when she decided to help them and be on the wrong side of the law, we find out that she has been on the run since then. She's still on the run and she ended up in Madripoor and she's become this art collector and sells it kind of on the black market in a way. And Sharon from kind of being this really on a pedestal, the right ways, this is the right way no matter what, the righteous way is the right way. She's become more of a great character as well where we see her kind of be more pissed off at Bucky and Sam and realizing that even though that they were all on the run, in the end, most likely because Bucky and Sam were part of the battle that saved not just the Earth, but the universe in Avengers Endgame, they were able to have a cushion to fall back on and getting pardons to kind of reinstitute themselves into 
normal life in a way where they're not always on the run. But Sharon wasn't able to do that. And I think she holds a grudge against Sam and Bucky for what they have and what she is yearning to have back after deciding to side with Captain America and these allies and not getting that same appreciation as well. And she also is somebody that kind of follows in the same line of thinking as Zemo in a way where these that heroes aren't the symbols that they are perceived to be and that they are that that the shield of Captain America is something that is a force and isn't to be believed in. And the star spangled the man with the plan. It, again, that pedestal that Sharon had Steve on, had Captain America on in those first two movies, she doesn't believe that same thing. And when she helps Bucky and and Sam out, she's somebody who is just trying to just trying to survive in a way. And she doesn't believe in the ideals that they are still trying to strive toward, especially Bucky, who's trying to trying to bring back out the legacy that he wants to see Steve's legacy continue to be and not what it is right now. So I thought those different ideologies that were kind of making these characters more gray was really, really interesting. And it was great to see Emily Van Camp back as Sharon Carter. And I think we've gotten more out of her character in just this one episode of Falcon and Winter Soldier than we did in both Winter Soldier and Civil War combined. And I love the way, the direction that they're taking her character. And then to kind of go more towards the ending of the episode where she gets this awesome fight scene in this shipyard area. And it was a really, really kind of cool scene to see Sharon take part. And she kind of gets this John Wick action sequence where she's hand-to-hand combat. She's kicking all these guys' asses. She's just doing a lot of great things. And she's still a badass and we never really got to see her do a lot of stunt sequences there was one or really two in uh, two in both Captain America films there was one at the end of Winter Soldier and there was that one sequence when she's fighting Bucky along with Tony and Natasha when he's trying to escape the the, the UN security system so I, I think it was really cool to see her just kind of take on all these guys by herself in this kind of one sequence take it was really really cool and I hope we get to see more of Sharon down the line and towards the ending of this episode when it seems like Zemo, Bucky, and Sam are going to be going on their merry way. I thought Sharon would get in with them, but then she says, look, give me a pardon, which Sam agrees to help Sharon get a pardon if she helps them. And it seems like that might be the end of Sharon, at least for right now. And towards the end of the episode, she gets into this other car with an assistant. And again, I think it kind of adds more questions than answers to what side is Sharon kind of playing on. And I want to get to that in a little bit, kind of the questions that we're left asking towards the end of who Sharon could possibly be by the end of this episode. And is she more on the good side? Is she on the bad side now? Or again, is she still in that gray area of what she is going through right now and trying to survive? And then I want to kind of talk a little bit about Madripoor a little bit in this new city, this new area of the MCU that we get to check out in this show. And in the beginning of the episode, when Bucky and Sam break Zemo out, they're trying to utilize him to learn about if Hydra has been looking to perfect the super soldier serum which is why the flag smashers have all these kind of powers which bucky and sam experienced in episode two and it seems like zemo wants to go to madripoor to follow up on a lead there and that's a place where they go and check out first and madripoor is basically this very rundown very kind of outlawish area where basically if you were to combine the new york and la of the john carpenter films of the 
escape to LA and escape to New York. That's basically what Madripoor is. And it's, it's, it's a very big location because it ties very heavily into the comics and specifically it ties into the Marvel universe as a whole, but specifically it ties into the universes of mutants and specifically the X-Men. And in the comics, the new mutants are holed up in Madripoor, but also the probably as of now, the most iconic X-Men in the franchise right now, which happens to be Wolverine, is very closely tied to Madripoor, specifically in a bar that is showcased in a quick shot that we get that is an Easter egg, which is the Princess Bar, which Wolverine in the comic books holds up in a lot, where he's a a part-time owner of the bar, he frequents the bar a lot, he gets into a lot of fights there. So Wolverine is a notorious in the Princess Bar. And so again, I don't think it's linking to mutants per se, but I think it is it is kind of a little bit of a nod nod wink wink of the of the the treasure trove that Kevin Feige and everybody over at Marvel Studios has now that the deal with Fox and Disney has been complete and they have and Marvel Studios has the rights now to franchises like Fantastic Four which is in development of its own film and down the line we'll get more announcements hopefully of what the mutants are going to look like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So again, we didn't get any hints of the mutants, but the fact that we get Madripoor and we explore Madripoor is I think enough of a wink wink nod nod to the future of the mutants down the line and also I, I think it's it's really interesting that we kind of get to see Bucky and Sam kind of having to be these two different people entirely and there's some really cool comedic bits where Sam has to impersonate the 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 the, the crowning tiger or the, or the silent tiger and he has to kind of blend in and, and he's having an awkward time of doing it and Bucky has to kind of be the winter soldier again and I think we kind of see him horrified by his past and having to reenact the past that he's trying to just completely forget but the main reason for why they're there is because of finding out who is recreating the super soldier serum and i think we've gotten little tidbits of it throughout the first two episodes but this really kind of goes into the mythology of the super soldier serum more so than like we've ever gotten since captain america the first avenger in 2011 and we find out that this doctor has been working on the super soldier serum and recreating what erskine did in the first avenger and we also get to learn a lot more about the power broker not just in these scenes about the serum but as a whole and it seems like the power broker is being set up as this mysterious big bad of the falcon and the winter soldier and we get a lot more tidbits and background about him that he's kind of the kingpin of madripoor and he also wanted to kind of recreate the super soldier serum and that is when carly and the flag smashers stole about 20 of those vials and carly gave about eight to the Flag Smashers that we see in the truck sequence and throughout when we see the Flag Smashers, that group is really the group of resistant fighters that isn't the entirety of the Flag Smashers and all of them have the Super Soldier Serum in them and there's about 12 vials that are remaining so there's still a bunch of people that could be injected with the serum throughout the last three episodes of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier but we learn that this doctor has been had been working on the Super Soldier Serum for a long time and that he drew a blood from one of the test subjects which links back to 
episode two with Isaiah being that test subject, who was the second Captain America after Steve went under at during World War II. So we get a lot of, of background information on the power broker, but we also get this big mythology about the super soldier serum that it wasn't just the fact that once Steve went under, that was it, the, that the, the, the program was, was done with, that nobody wanted to try to recreate another Captain America. And it seems like the United States government was able to do it with success, but they wanted to keep it down low. They didn't want anybody to know about it, which is why, again, kind of talking about the themes of the show, they decided to put their black Captain America basically on ice in ways that they just really kind of just just swept it under the rug, that all the service that Isaiah did would just really kind of went unnoticed. And the only other time that we heard about the super soldier serum trying to be recreated was when Bruce was trying to do it in The Incredible Hulk, and that led to him becoming the green monster himself instead. So that those were the only little tidbits we knew about the super soldier serum. But in just this little exposition dump entirely, we got a lot more about the super soldier serum than we had in the MCU for a very, very long time. And then it kind of goes into the fact about refining the serum, which I think it kind of goes into the fact that, listen, you don't need to bulk up. You don't need to put on all these muscles. I was able to refine it where you can be a skinny person and still have the enhancements of what Steve Rogers and Isaiah were able to have in their entirety alone. So again, hearing more about the the super soldier serum, I think it brings in a lot of questions specifically about who has or who could get the vials. Could it be Eli, who in the comics becomes the Patriot, who is Isaiah's grandson, or could John Walker get the super soldier serum that gives him the enhancements that really makes him like Steve Rogers and Captain America of the past? Or is does Sam get the get the super soldier serum as well? So I think we I don't think we realized how big the legacy we knew the shield and the legacy were going to be big and underlying themes. But really, the entirety of the legacy of Captain America just going to the super soldier serum is really, really becoming a big factor in this show. And I'm really excited to see where that evolves from moving forward. And then speaking about Carly and the Flag Smashers, we get to learn a little bit more about Carly herself and really the reasons for why she's doing these things. And we get a little bit more background on her where this isn't what she wanted to do and that she wanted to become a teacher. And we kind of get this little this little heartfelt moment where Carly is trying to do what she thinks is right. And then towards the end of the episode, when they go into the this GRC, the Global Re, 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 Re or I think it's the Global Repudiation Council or something like that the GRC where they're basically trying to restore the the world order to what it was before the snap and blip happened with Thanos and for Carly and her group they see it as a way of restoring things in a way in which you don't kill everyone that came back but you live in a world that was in those five years where it's without borders that it's without allies and enemies and in a way was maybe a little bit more of a peaceful time period and you're seeing kind of all these people being kind of shelved away and and put into these homes and and aren't really living in the best conditions. And the GRC is really doing nothing about it. And Carly is it taking it upon herself to do that. And I think throughout this episode, you can agree with where she's coming from and can support her in a way. But then again, going into the gray area that we experience with a lot of these characters in this episode, she does something where she blows up this GRC building with uh, with security men still inside. And 
and she kills people. She killed a bunch of innocent people in that building. And so again, coming to that gray area, you can understand where Carly is coming from in her mission, but the way that she execute those actions, I don't think is something that you can entirely agree with. And I'm really interested in seeing where Carly's character and the Flag Smashers go from, from here as well. So again, we get a lot more of this of this gray area and the same thing again goes with john walker where he isn't as prominent as he was in the second episode but again in just the few scenes that he's in we see john walker become more of a paranoid egomaniac kind of captain america where he's questioning this group of people in munich that were holding up the flag smashers and he that john walker doesn't get that respect as he is captain america so Again, it's. I think this is a leading down a path where, even though the writers, I think, did a really in- good job of making people sympathize in a way with John in episode two. I think again we're going to get more of that gray area, and it sounds like we're going to get really a lot more exploration of this character in this Friday's upcoming episode of the show. So I'm really interested to see more of John Walker, even though he wasn't as prominent in this episode. Which again, I don't think if they really dive into him in these final three episodes incredibly well then i'll be satisfied with not having a lot of john walker in this episode but then the big thing that happened towards the the finale and it was really referenced throughout this episode but we i didn't really pick up on it that they would really execute on it is the fact that once sam bucky and zemo find out more about carly and that she's in 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 lavita and that they're holding up there to try to intercept her. Bucky notices something on the ground, and when he picks it up, it looks like a Wakandan bead. And so he collects them throughout, and then he comes face to face with the one of the heads of the Dormilaji. It's not, it's not Danny Guerrero's character. It's not Koye, but it is actually Io from Captain America: Civil War, who she was the prominent Dormilaji in that film, and she was also in Black Panther and Avengers: Infinity War. But this she represents bringing in the Wakandans, bringing in the Black Panther part of the universe into this storyline, which makes sense because she is there to bring Zemo in to face justice since he was broken out of prison. And, and again, it was referenced by Sam in which, do you think the Wakandans are going to forget what Zemo did to King T'Chaka? And clearly by the end of this episode, we know that they are not going to forget that. And it seems like the Wakandans are going to become a major prominent part in these final three episodes of tr- bringing Zemo back to Wakanda to face justice for what they did to his kingdom. And it makes sense because in Black Panther, what Ulysses Claw did in stealing all that vibranium, killing a few Wakandans, they did not forget that and they were in pursuit of Claw throughout all those years. And even when he re- surfaced back up again on the radar in Black Panther with Killmonger, they wanted to make sure to bring him to justice. And I'm sure even seven years later, after the death of King T'Chaka, the Wakandans want to see him brought towards justice in the end. And I got to say, for a split second, my mind was racing that we could potentially see Chadwick Boseman in this episode because it, if it if memory serves me correctly, I do think that the, maybe the first epi- three or four episodes of this show were probably filmed prior to the pandemic. So at that point, maybe Chadwick Boseman was still alive and healthy enough to record a cameo or something. But 
I don't think we're going to get him in this show at all because, again, they had to pause production because of COVID and they didn't get back to doing production until, I think, August and into September. So they, Chadwick Boseman at that point was either was passed away at that point or was on his way to, to leaving us. So I don't think we're going to see him in this episode or in the show at all. But again, just having a member of the Dora Milaje in this and representing that part of Wakanda and bringing Black Panther into the storyline, that part of the universe is significant enough that I'm really interested in seeing how they're going to bring her into this storyline moving forward and if if she'll have a prominent part in just the next episode if she'll have a prominent part in the final three episodes to come and that brings us to kind of asking questions in these final three episodes as we are at the halfway point of this series of the show which is kind of crazy to think that the show started three weeks ago now and we we only have three weeks left to go in this six episode series but there's still a lot of questions to be asked, and, and I think that one of the big ones is, of course, the the question of of Io and, and what she's going to be doing in trying to recapture Zemo and the dynamic that changes with Bucky, and if Bucky is in on this plan of, of taking down Zemo once he's no longer of use to Sam and Bucky and tracking down the Super Soldier Serum, and if Zemo knows this and is planning on trying to get out of it in some kind of way, because also in this episode. We get a lot of instances that Zemo is still very cunning and is very still razor sharp in his intellectual skills. So it'll be interesting to see where that storyline goes. But to me, the biggest question moving forward is the one bringing back up Sharon Carter. And and the fact that by the end of this episode, I think because she goes into this car and says that they have a few problems, and again, the, the, the title of this episode is Power Broker, and we do get an idea that the Power Broker is probably the big bad of this season. He wants to take down the Flag Smashers. He wants to regain the Super Soldier Serum for himself. So it seems like this person is the prominent antagonist of this show, not Zemo, as of right now, and that could change within the next week or two. But it seems like this power broker is going to be a big force to be dealt with. And we still have no idea who this person is. And one of the clues that we got, again, with the last scene of Sharon is that maybe... Over these last few years, Sharon has grown such animosity towards the states, towards the Avengers and Bucky and Sam for the life, the life that they have now that she doesn't have anymore, that maybe she is looking to recreate the super soldier serum herself and that she herself is the power broker. Because in the, the scene where the doctor is talking about recreating the serum, that the CIA decided to shut the program down after the doctor was snapped away and when he came back five years later the program was gone and then from the time of the final battle of avengers endgame to the six months between that and falcon the winter soldier the power broker has decided to bring the the program back up and running in madripoor so could that be in a way that sharon could have created this monarch of the power broker within that time period is it somebody else completely so i don't think that sharon is out of the woods of being this very great character of whether she's undercover working for the CAA or not or if she really is this far gone that she becomes the villain of this show and that the love of Steve's life or the niece of the love of Steve's life becomes the main villain to Steve's two main friends and I think that would be a very interesting twist that nobody really maybe saw coming if they did not theorize this point and ask this question so 
again, I think that would be a great twist. I think it'd be very intriguing. And again, add more depth to Sharon than we've ever gotten really throughout the, the two movies that she was in and really kind of reinvent her character in a way that wasn't done before. So I'm really excited to see where Sharon Carter's story goes from here. And I think now this show is starting to ask some really good questions and dive into some theories that we didn't have beforehand of who the power broker is. How is Io going to factor into this journey that Bucky and Sam are on with Zemo? What is is Sam going to do with the shield? Is he going to get the shield back? What is John Walker's character are going to continue to evolve into in the next few episodes? So I think there's a lot of interesting factors that are going to come into play moving forward with the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But overall, what did you guys think about this episode? Again, I thought it was great. I love the character development. I thought the performances all across the board were great, especially Damien Brashear, who just really kind of comes in and commands the scenes once again as Zemo. I love him in the purple mask. The outfit is comic accurate. So I'm really excited to see where this goes from here. And I really did enjoy this episode. So what did you guys think about this episode? Again, put all of your spoiler thoughts in the comments section below and that will do it for this spoiler review so now i'm going to come out of it at around the 28 minute mark and i'll put that down in the comment section so once again if you have not seen the falcon and the winter soldier yet and you don't want to be spoiled come back watch my non-spoiler review and then once you have watched the episode come back to the spoiler review and check it out again in the comment section in the description of this episode i will put in the time that we talked about the falcon and the Winter Soldier, so you'll see the runtime in the beginning point and the end point of my spoiler discussion. So that will do it, and now we're going to move on to some other major movie news stories that took place over the last few days, and I want to start out with the first positive box office recap in the pandemic era. And over the weekend, the, the probably the first big blockbuster or highly anticipated blockbuster since maybe Wonder Woman 1984 and, and maybe in the last year, year and a half, and that was Kong versus Godzilla, or rather Godzilla versus Kong. And over the last few, year, really, we haven't had a lot of positive box office news for a while. Tenant really didn't produce that. The Croods over an 11, 12-week span provided some positive news here and there. But nothing consistent. And Wonder Woman 1984 didn't really do all that much either when it came to box office numbers. And so Godzilla vs. Kong is really the first one to do it. And over the five-day weekend since it was released on March 31st and not on April 2nd, which is a which is a Friday, over a five-day span, it grossed over $48.5 million. And in its three-day span from Friday to Sunday, it grossed $32.2 million internationally it has 236.9 million dollars this weekend it earned 71.6 million dollars and overall it has grossed 285.4 million dollars worldwide and this is coming off of the heels the weekend before Godzilla vs. Kong opened in the states in which in China it grossed over 121 million dollars which for a foreign title that it was not made in China it is the best opening by far since the pandemic began and Godzilla vs. Versus Kong is just continuing to break records throughout the pandemic. It holds the best top three-day opening of the pandemic in North America, which it used to belong to Wonder Woman 1984 when it grows $16.7 million throughout its Christmas release date when it came out last year. And it will soon surpass the total domestic grosses of both Tenet 
and Crude's a new age, and they both gross around $57 million domestically. And, I, and it would not be surprising if Godzilla vs. Kong also took over the international or worldwide accumulation for Tenant, which is around over, I think, $350, $360 million worldwide. So it has a chance to also break that out as well. And also what was interesting is that Godzilla vs. Kong is also the best domestic opening, beating out the Godzilla King of the Monsters opening, which came in at $47.8 million. And it is also the biggest opening weekend of the pandemic era. And since Sonic the Hedgehog came out President's Day weekend in February of last year, where over a three-day span it grossed $58 million, and over the four-day President's Day weekend in 2020, it grossed $70 million. And right now, according to analysts, has a shot of grossing over $100 million domestically, which hasn't been done since Sonic the Hedgehog and The Invisible Man when it was making its short run before the pandemic really, really hit us hard in the middle and end of March. So... Again, this is a huge day for theatrical exhibition. This is the kind of numbers that they wanted to see. And uh, again, I think the big indication for even if this this if this film had 50% capacity for theaters in, in New York City or or LA, or if it was fully if you're fully able to go to the theaters, the fact that even in a pandemic era where there's limited capacity in a lot of the major markets in theaters, it still was able to muster past Godzilla King of the Monsters in its opening weekend, which was which is absolutely incredible. And again, I think if you were to look at these numbers, maybe pre-pandemic times, they're not that good for a film that probably cost between 160, 200 million dollars for a budget before factoring in or probably factoring in for promotioning promotion and marketing for this film so again i think this is an incredible day for theatrical exhibition and showcases that even with i think a day and date release if people want to go to the theaters and people want to see a big blockbuster budgeted film on the biggest format possible they'll go to the theaters to do that and i think this is a positive sign for warner brothers and the fact that i was one of the people and a lot of people criticized them for their run of doing a day and date release of hbo max and theaters maybe that wouldn't might not have worked but i think right now we're seeing that if you want to go see a film first in theaters you will go and see that big film in theaters and, and godzilla versus Kong that i think they're hoping that maybe mortal kombat will do that same thing at, at the end of april as well maybe they're hoping that in the heights the suicide squad those films are able to do that for them during the summer movie season as well and speaking about hbo max the streaming numbers according to samba tv which again only counts for smart tvs recorded a pretty interesting tidbit for the streaming numbers of Godzilla vs. Kong, which according to Warner Media is the biggest watched edition of HBO Max since it released in May, eclipsing both Wonder Woman 1984 and the recently released Zack Snyder's Justice League. And it, according to Samba TV, again, these numbers aren't really accurate and don't eclipse everything. But according to the numbers that we do have so far, according to Samba TV, which looks at, 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 at digital televisions, live television, smart TVs, is that it grows 3.6 million views over the March 31st, April first weekend and it beat Wonder Woman 1984 which had 2.6 million and the Snyder Cut had 1.8 million so uh, again that doesn't really encompass 
all the numbers and I think the, the biggest numbers that we might see, the more concrete numbers, is what Warner Media might put out on its investor day in the next few weeks to come. So we could really see what kind of numbers it actually makes. But again, this just goes to the to what the box office does so well in its reporting that it, it really opens up the actual statistical numbers that we can see of what a film actually made. But when it comes to streaming, this started with Netflix and now Disney Plus is going through it and, and, and HBO Max is doing it as well. We don't know the exact numbers and there's no solidified analytical standpoint of what really makes a true viewing in terms of actually watching the film from beginning to end. Because even with some of these statistics from Samba TV, it sounds like once you watch over five minutes or so of the movie, you can actually that counts as a view. And according to when Zack Snyder's Justice League came out, it was less of a percentage of people actually finished the four hour Snyder cut than people that actually initially watched it and saw the whole whole thing through. So we don't really know what count constitutes as a view. And with the Nielsen ratings for Netflix, if you watch something past two minutes, that can, that is considered a view. Whereas if you don't like what you're watching, you can turn it off 10 minutes into the film, but it'll still count as towards actually watching a films or a television show when it comes to that as well. So we don't really know the numbers and we can't really be confident with what the numbers are and really compare and contrast of what did better. Was it the theatrical numbers that were better? Was it the 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 streaming numbers that were better? Is this something that is actually working? Is it both balanced right now because of the pandemic? Did, did streaming conquer over over theatrical, what is the the number percentage? Because right now I think with this day and date release, is it gonna work for the rest of the year for Warner Media or do they feel confident enough of of putting something out in just theaters? Would if studios were to look at the numbers, would maybe something like a Black Widow and a Cruella maybe, or maybe more so Black Widow since that's coming out now in July 9th, whereas Cruella's coming out May 28th, so that still may be too short of a window. But something like Black Widow, does Disney look at that and say maybe you know what the box office is coming back? We feel confident by June, July, there will be more that the capacity will be enlarged by 50 or more percent in a lot of the major markets that we want to just put it on in theaters or is there more of a balanced number where also people are streaming these films as well so i still think there's a lot of questions to be asked but seeing these numbers gives a a a broad picture of what these numbers might actually mean but in terms of theatrical again i think this is a big win for theatrical exhibition in a year that they've had just just beat down after beat down after beat down i think this is a great indication of where things could go and again this is a this is another baby step in where you want to go from here now it's going to be about opening back up the 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 united kingdom and also opening back up the world again as well and starting to get more capacities lifted up in the theaters that we have right now. So again, it's going to come down to what kind of properties do you have out and, and are, do people want to see them that is is worthy enough of going to the movies right now and spending some time in a theater with your masks on, socially distancing and putting your lives, not in danger, but you know, putting your health in, in the safety of others for a few hours. So I think that this is a very good indication of where this is going and now one of the big things going forward is the 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 release schedule because 
now between Godzilla versus Kong and Mortal Kombat, there isn't really anything going on until May 14th or really May 28th, a month later after Mortal Kombat, where May 14th we have the, the new Spiral film, for the, the, the new Saw reboot. And after that, if, uh, about a week or two after, you have A Quiet Place Part 2. You also have a, a few other films that are coming out like Cruella on Disney Plus and in theaters doing the day and date release. So what what are those questions going to really be moving forward? And once we get a, a stable release schedule going, is that going to fill up every single week with all these new films that are coming out? So a lot of questions still to be answered, but this is another great peek at the light at the hopeful end of the tunnel for all that is going on right now in the world and specifically with the actual exhibition. And hopefully this continues to trend towards positive news with more vaccinations happening, the cases hopefully continuing to go down as well in the coming months. And hopefully we can hit that date of June, July, we're back to some kind of normalcy, still social distancing and wearing masks as of right now, but we can open up things back to a bigger capacity where we can have people bumping into one another, masks on and and, and, and still maybe social distancing at some point as well. But it's a, it's a bigger capacity than what things are at right now. So hopefully this is a little peak of the light at the end of the tunnel for theatrical exhibition. And what do you guys think about this box office recap? Are you happy about it? Are you satisfied with it? Did you enjoy Godzilla versus Kong? Let me know what you think and leave your thoughts below. Now I want to get on to another bit of movie news that came out, and it is the official announcement, according to Sylvester Stallone, that he confirmed what a lot of people thought in that Rocky Balboa will not be featured in the third Creed installment, and that he is officially hanging up his gloves in that instance of reprising his role in that that branch of the franchise, which, again, I think makes a whole lot of sense. I know people are going to be sad, and I'll be sad not having him in here. I thought Sylvester Stallone and Ryan Coogler did a great job of reinventing the Rocky character in the 2015 film Creed, which earned Sylvester Stallone an Academy Award and should have, side note, gained him his first win as an actor in gaining an Academy Award. But that's another dis- discussion for another day. And I think... What the first Creed film did so well is give Rocky so many different layers, and the second Creed film kind of made him more of that Mickey, that that Mickey character taking on that Mickey mantle. No, no actual intended of saying Mickey mantle, but it actually brought him into being that kind of of mentor for Creed, and didn't really give any I think personal stakes for Rocky, other than the fact that he was going up against Ivan Drago again, at both of them being mentors to their their sons, with Rocky kind of Adonis being more of a of a figurative son, not actual from blood, but somebody that the kid that that Rocky is looking to kind of train, kind of like what Mickey did with Rocky in a way. So I think you were able to get that, and and I think again with the with the second Creed film, they left Rocky's story off enough where you can get an emotional satisfaction. He reunited with his son. He he has a grandson now, so I think Rocky's in a place where he's beaten cancer. He has a second wind of life. I think he's going to spend it the best way he knows how, which is not with boxing, but with his actual family and, and and learning to be with them now. And I think it all really kind of hands it down to Adonis Creed. And this leg of the Rocky franchise is now Adonis. Creed's franchise now. This is Michael B. Jordan's 
franchise. And we're seeing that happen, not just as a star, but as a director now. And I think he's going to take this character in, in, in different ways and I think kind of start making it Adonis' own story in a way, where it's not just going to rely on the Rocky universe. It's not going to rely on bringing back old comrades from the Rocky franchise to bring into Adonis' storyline. I think this is really going to become Adonis figuring out the his boxing career and also being a family man. So I'm really interested in seeing how they're going to craft that story moving forward. And again, I think Michael B. Jordan is enough of a star now where he can carry this franchise on his own. Adonis is, Adonis is popular enough. The Creed name itself is popular enough after two movies that people will go because of watching Adonis Creed and not just because it has Rocky, Rocky Balboa and Sly back in that role as Balboa once again. So... I'm really excited for what for what Creed 3 is going to bring, even without Sylvester Stallone being in the role. And you know what? Maybe he comes in and does a cameo role here and there. Maybe Adonis is down on his luck. He needs some advice, and he calls Rocky up, and Rocky offers him some fatherly advice of, of how to overcome his adversities. But that's it. And if they do that, I would love that little sequence if they're able to do it with Sly as well. So I'm all for that as well. But this isn't really totally the end of Rocky as Sylvester Stallone has made it clear that there could be another film that involves Rocky training a, a, a an, an immigrant and bringing him up into the States. And there's also the development potentially of a young Rocky series in the works as well, where we kind of see the, the young days of Rocky Balboa when he was a scrappy street fighter, like we saw in the first film in the opening couple of minutes. So if we get that and Sylvester's a part of that, I'd be down for that as well. But again, I'm not, uh, I'm not upset. Am I a little sad? Yeah because I love Rocky and I thought what Sylvester Stallone was bringing to the last two Creed films was great, but I'm not bummed and I'm not going to not see Creed 3 because he's not in it. I've come to love Adonis Creed's storyline. I've come to love Michael B. Jordan in this role. I've come to love the characters that are played by Felicia Rashad and Tessa Thompson. So as long as those characters are in this film, I'm all for this one and I cannot wait to see Creed 3 next year, especially with Michael B. Jordan directing it and for him to add another talented element of himself to his arsenal as being a multi-pronged entertainer in this industry. So I'm very happy for him, very excited. And again, sad that we won't see Rocky back in this, but again, I think this is Adonis' storyline. As long as we have Adonis Creed, I'm all for another Creed film happening. What do you guys think about Rocky not being in Creed 3? Does it sway you from not seeing the third installment in the Creed franchise? Let me know what you think and leave your thoughts. Now for the final bit of movie news that I want to get into today, I'm going to go and run down a bunch of trending trailers that came out over the last few days. I'm going to start out with one that came out over the weekend. And it has to do with the MCU, and it is now the first film in the MCU, and what will be the first MCU film in over two years since July, the July 4th weekend of 2019 when Spider-Man Far From Home hit theaters, and that is, of course, Black Widow, which is directed by Kate Shoreland, and it stars Scarlett Johansson once again as the iconic Natasha Romanoff. You also have newcomers such as Florence Pugh coming in as Elena, and you also have David Harbour coming in as Red Guardian, and also Rachel Weisz coming into this universe. And this is really the first trailer that we've gotten since, I think, March of last year, when it was the final trailer for when this was still going to come out on May 1st of 2020 and 
it's the Black Widow has been moved back so many times over the last year that really Marvel Studios had to reinstitute a, a marketing campaign for this film. And that's going to be the same thing for a lot of films that excuse me, have come out over the last few years, really, the last few months that were pushed back so many times. Fast 9 is going to have to do it. Quiet Place Part 2 is going to have to revitalize their marketing campaign. In the Heights has already done that over the last few weeks. And Black Widow is going to have to do that as well. So this is really kind of a, a brand new trailer. And the question really is, for Marvel, since they already put out a bunch of marketing material for this film, how do you continue to market the film without rehashing old stuff that you used before, but also not spoiling anything that'll give major details away before people see the film on July 9th? And I think what this trailer did was perfect because I think what this whole film is going to be about is legacy. This is a prequel film that takes place after Civil War, before Infinity War, and before her demise in Avengers Endgame. So we get to kind of see that development where after we watch Civil War, we can go right into Black Widow and see that journey play out and then go into Infinity War and Endgame. And so it seems like we're going to see that progression of the character while also going into her past and figuring out who she was before she became an Avenger and before we saw her in the first Avengers film and in Iron Man 2. So I love that kind of exploration. In the trailer, the first half of it is really kind of showcasing the legacy of Natasha up until this point, showing clips of her in Avengers, in Endgame, Infinity War, Civil War. So I think to kind of see where her journey has gone through has just been absolutely remarkable. And then we really kind of get for the first time flashbacks of Natasha Romanoff as a little girl. And we see that this family unit that has been set up that we see in the present with David Harbour and Rachel Weisz and, and Florence and, and Scarlett, all of them are were really kind of a family when Natasha and Yelena were younger. And it seems like they really had a familial bond throughout the, the Black Widow program. And we're really going to explore that time of Natasha's life and explore the Red Room, explore the Black Widow program. And so I think that this new trailer did a great job of, of teasing us and bringing back that nostalgic feeling of a lot of these Marvel films, especially the ones that Natasha was in, and also kind of reminding us that we're really going to go into this character's psyche, this character's life uh, of a character that deserves a solo film. And and I think it's very, very popular amongst people that really want to see her do her thing. So I, I love what we saw. I love the little bits that we got of Taskmaster. I love that aerial shot sequence that we got where it seems like it's hand-to-hand combat uh, amongst the air. I'm really excited about this movie and, and what we're going to get with it. And it is coming out on July 9th. So I think for a lot of people, this new trailer, I think, reinvigorated the excitement into seeing this film, which I think for a lot of people was was swaying away a little bit because of just this thing getting pushed back and pushed back. And I think just now people want to see this film and just to have it out there. So I think it really reignited excitement in people to see this film. And that's going to be a testament for a lot of other films that were pushed back. Again, Quiet Place Part 2 really was in the last, it was in the last week of its marketing push. And it was going to release that week when everything shut down and COVID-19 became a global pandemic. So really for Paramount, they need to put that film out in theater. And I think for them, it'll be interesting to see what kind of marketing campaign they put forward now 
as well. And the same thing with Fast Five. In the Heights is doing that. Top Gun Maverick didn't really have a lot of uh, marketing material, but it had two trailers out. It put out a Super Bowl spot. So that's money that was spent, a lot of money that was spent, millions of dollars in pushing this film out there for people to notice. So you're going to have to do that exact same thing again without rehashing a lot of old material that people have already seen that they can go back and see in, in older trailers, but also reigniting that excitement that I think Black Widow was able to do with their trailer this weekend. So what did you guys think about the Black Widow trailer? Did it reignite your excitement in seeing this film on on July 9th, whether it's in theaters or on Disney Plus Premiere Access? Let me know what you think and leave your thoughts below. And then sticking with the MCU real quick, yesterday we did get a surprise trailer, full trailer, for the next Disney Plus show in the MCU after the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and that is Loki, which Tom Hiddleston finally gets the light, the limelight all to himself as the god of mischief in Loki. And we got a lot more details about the basic plot of this trailer. The last one that we got on Disney's Investor Day, I think really kind of teased what all the, the kind of crazy kookiness that we're gonna get, where it seems like we're dealing with multiple universes, multiple timelines. We got introduced to Owen Wilson's character, to the to, to the Time Variance Authority. But this trailer really, I think, really went more in depth without giving up too much away of what this show really is going to be about. And it seems like it's gonna be dealing with Loki joining up with the Time Variance Authority, or really the Time Variance Authority forcing Loki to work with them in reestablishing all the timelines that he messed up after he took the Tesseract in his own timeline in Avengers Endgame. It seems like he's been doing a lot of mischief stuff where he's created about 13 different branches of, of timelines that they need to stop and and kind of put back into into place. And we also get new looks at Owen Wilson's character, and we kind of see the, the great banter between him and Tom Hiddleston, which I'm excited to see. And we get uh, of the first look of Gugu Mbathu uh, Raw's character, and and one of the actresses from Lovecraft Country gets some, some shine in this one as well. And it seems like we could be getting a whole bunch of Lokis in this show and it just looks incredible and, and the, the the visuals the style the colors just really pop out in this trailer and so i absolutely love it and i also love the the production design of the TVA, which very much reminds me of of Fallout, the, the the video game, where a very 50s kind of creepy aesthetic that we have going on at the TVA. So I'm really excited to see how all that blends in and works together. And I believe this is also going to be six episodes, and they're going to be about 40 to 50 minutes in length. So it'll act kind of as, a, like again, its own little mini movie, like the Falcon and the Winter Soldier is right now. And again, we'll get a lot more time to layer out Loki even more but the great thing about this one is the fact that it's a brand new Loki right after the Avengers. So all the events of Dark World, Ragnarok, Infinity War, where he sacrificed himself, all that never happened. So we still get this really, this evil villain Loki right after Avengers, the first one that we really get to explore a whole lot more of. So I think for Tom Hiddleston, that's great. And I can't wait to see what else he does with this character. And, and really, he's one of the oldest other than Chris Hemsworth, he's the oldest member of the MCU up until this point right now. Well, other than him and Samuel L. Jackson, really, they've, they, Tom Hiddleston's been with this franchise since really 
2009, 2010 when he was casted as Loki. So he's really been around for almost well, well over a decade now. It'll be 11 years and 10 years since Thor came out. And really, I would say in 11 since he was probably casted in the role. So he's been with this character for a long, long time. See it evolved. And I think he wouldn't be coming back if, if, if Marvel didn't have something special to tell with this character. So I'm very excited. It does come out June 11th. And because Black Widow moved, we do get a little bit of a breather for about a month or so without any Marvel Studios productions. So I think that'll, again, give people time to marinate over what they saw with both WandaVision and the end of the Falcon and Winter Soldier and then get ready for that second wave, which will be even bigger when we get all the movies coming out in the second half of 2021 and the rest of the Disney Plus shows that I'll start with Loki on June 11th and if Black Widow sticks to its July 9th release date, the, the penultimate episode of Loki will also fall on the same date as Black Widow. So we could be getting double dosage of the Marvel Cinematic Universe during the summertime before What If, before Shang-Chi comes out in September. So a lot of exciting stuff coming from Marvel Studios. And again, after again having two years with no movies coming out and really a full year with a, full, a year and a half almost really of no content whatsoever, Kicking it off with WandaVision, it's just been one hell of a resurgence in a way of Marvel Studios kind of saying, did you forget about us a little bit? And showcasing the power that their content still has. Even though it hasn't been on the big screen, it's really showcasing that even on the small screen on a streaming service, Marvel Studios, their content, their storytelling is still one of the most powerful and most influential and popular ones that is out there right now. So what did you guys think about both the Black Widow trailer and the Loki trailer, which one are you more excited about? Let me know what you think and leave your thoughts. And then moving away from the MCU and to go over to another highly anticipated summer title that'll be making its way to both HBO Max and theaters on July 16th. And that is the first trailer for the sequel to the cult classic Space Jam, and that is Space Jam A New Legacy, which is produced by Ryan Coogler, it's directed by Ma Malcolm Lee, and of course it stars Los Angeles Laker NBA superstar LeBron James, kind of taking over the shoes now in acting in taking on a Space Jam sequel. And this one, I think, is, is a lot different from what we saw in the first Space Jam film, whereas this one really, I think, seems to be taking on a lot more of the Ready Player One aspects, where it's not just the Looney Tunes that we're going to see, it's, it's every single Warner Media IP that you can think of that is going to be a part of this film. And you have Game of Thrones that was a part of it. King Kong was a part of it. You, I, I, I'm, I'm blanking on a, on a whole bunch of things. You got a, clock, clock, a clockwork orange cast in there, kind of in the background. You had all different kinds of, of characters and people that were a part of this thing that I think people will kind of be looking at for many, many months to come. And so it reminded me of, of that in a little bit. And uh, again, it, the, the trailer itself, again, this is, I think, a full-on kids film. It looks stupid. It looks ridiculous. But I'm somebody who really, really enjoyed the first Space Jam film. I still love aspects of it to this day. And again, I just think for this, this is a, for a whole new generation, hence take the, the title, A New Legacy. This is a, a brand new legacy for Space Jam for younger kids now. And I think this is 
if anything, going to be a great promoter for Warner Media for HBO Max. Check out all the IP content that is in the film that a lot of people can check out on HBO Max after they watch Space Jam 2. So it looks really good. And, and I think the big question that maybe people had was how LeBron James would act in this. And again, from his little comedic stint that he did in Trainwreck, I think he, he looks good in this role. And again, it'll be interesting for him because he's acting alongside basically a lot of CGI characters other than it seems like Misha Green or, or Don Cheeto, the only really, and his son are the only humans he interacts with. So it'll be very interesting to see what aspect we kind of get of LeBron James playing up against all these CGI characters. I do love the 2D aspect that we get when LeBron sucked into the the Warner Brothers animation where it's 2D. It reminds me of that old Looney Tunes animation that I loved and to kind of see them then become these full-on like CGI real D characters is really really interesting. So again it looked fun, kooky. I'm into it. I was going to watch it no matter what so I am all for Space Jam A New Legacy but I can understand how for some adults Again, it could turn people off, but this is not for us, the adults or teenagers. This is for the younger kids. This is for the 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 6-year-olds even, really. So I, I don't think a lot of people are going to get as much enjoyment out of this, but if they just go in and expect a fun, kooky, crazy time, this is exactly the a definition of, of a kid's summer movie that I think a lot of people will enjoy that has a high-profile athlete, a high-profile celebrity in the role. So I think this one is going to do very well for itself on Netflix on not just HBO Max, but also on the big screen as well. What do you guys think about the Space Jam New Legacy trailer? Let me know what you think and leave your thoughts below. And the final thing that I want to talk about, the last trailer and the last thing to talk about today on the Sam Bissell podcast is, of course, the brand new trailer for the new Tom Clancy adaptation, Without Remorse, which is directed by Stefano Salina, and it stars Michael B. Jordan, Jamie Bell, and Jodie Turner-Smith. And this is based off of the the John Walker franchise in the Tom Clancy universe that also includes Jack Ryan. And Michael B. Jordan is a producer on this film. He stars in it. And I really like the first trailer that came out. I was really into it. I love the action. The hand-to-hand combat looks great. It looks like a fun time. And this trailer just did exactly what I liked about the first trailer, which it reinforced the action, the stunts, the, the, the craziness of this film. But I think it also did a great job of framing up the story of what we're going to get in this film and Michael B. Jordan again just looks fierce and just badass and I can't wait to see what he does in this film and to me the bigger questions coming out of this is could this be a franchise for Amazon which it was supposed to be for Paramount but but Paramount doing what they did for a lot of the films during this last year year and a half almost two years basically well basically like a year year and a half now is basically selling off a bunch of their their films now a bunch of their properties two streaming services like Netflix with Trial of the Chicago 7 or Lovebirds or with Coming to America or what STX did with My Spy last year as well. A lot of companies and studios have been selling off these films to make more money than they would probably make in the box office right now. So that's exactly what Paramount did with Without Remorse. And along with getting this film, they also were able to ink a first look exclusive with Michael B. Jordan and his production company in a multitude of ways in television and film and technology they're really getting michael b jordan to be the kind of one of the faces of amazon moving forward and this is one of the things that they included in there so 
besides being a, a franchise not for Paramount but for Amazon, I'm really excited to see where the this could lead down the line. And I'm also looking forward to this because along with this being a part of Amazon, they also have the Jack Ryan television series with John Krasinski as well. And hopefully they can get their act together soon and come out with the third season for that if it's still in development. But hopefully, maybe, just maybe, if this film does well, we could be getting our own Tom Clancy universe because with these two characters they do intersect within the Jack Ryan universe so it wouldn't be out of the it wouldn't just kind of be out of left field of these two are Tom Clancy books let's put them together but they actually do make sense because without remorse in the Tom Clancy universe is a sequel or not a sequel but a prequel to the Jack Ryan novels where we get to learn more about this character who we are introduced to in the Jack Ryan novel so if there was some way to be able to cross these two franchises together I would be all for that. I would love it. Kind of seeing Krasinski and Michael B. Jordan acting alongside one another in these two roles would be great. But we got to get past this first film, first film. And if my spy is able to do accordingly really well with Amazon as it did last year in Greenlight, a sequel. I think people will be into this without remorse, because, again, everyone who loves espionage films, spy films. This is going to be for them. It has that big blockbuster spectacle that you would suspect to be in theaters because it was supposed to be released in theaters. So it has that great quality. It seems like everything was put right to what the budget needed to, to be. So I'm really excited for this one and I'm really looking forward to it. It is in a month that there is not a whole lot of stuff to look forward to. This is my most anticipated title to come out, trumping over Mortal Kombat, which I'm looking forward to. But I do love, again, espionages and spy thrillers. And I'm a huge fan of the Tom Clancy novels of Jack Ryan. And seeing these trailers have really got me excited for what to expect and also the fact that the director Stefano Salina did Sicario Day of the Soldado and now it's not on the same level as the first Sicario film which I consider to be a phenomenal film however the second Sicario film is pretty good and especially the first half of that movie is especially strong and pretty much and kind of lives up to that level of the first Sicario film and it kind of falters in its in its second half a little bit but I was really impressed with the direction of that film so if if Salima can do what he did in that film and translate that over to a full production and deliver it from beginning to end then i am very much looking forward to seeing this movie on april 30th what do you guys think about this trailer for without remorse and overall which trailer is your favorite not just the black widow or the loki trailer but is it black widow is it loki is it the space jam and new legacy trailer is it the without remorse trailer let me know which one was your favorite and leave your thoughts but with that down and out of the way that will do it for this edition of the sam Bissell podcast once again everybody thank you so much for tuning in be sure to check out my channel for more content you can check me out on spotify apple podcast stitcher radio public soundcloud and much more also make sure to tune in on to the ambiguous podcast solutions and be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on there such as you mad bro the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also check out goal-driven professionals geared toward improving client relations, return on investment and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also check out The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. 
You can also check out the other amazing shows that are on the Podcast Solutions, such as Wrestle Attic Radio, WrestleMania Podcast, and Midnight Showing. You can check these out and so much more on the website, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com, also on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, when you get a chance, make sure to follow me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Bissell Samuel, that's B U S S E L L S A M U E L, and on Facebook at Sam Bissell. You can also check me out on my YouTube channel at The Sam Bissell Podcast, where I have a lot of amazing content on that site. So once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, keep on screening.